Hey guys, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. And I want to start off today uh, by posing a question. What can a squalling, bawling, diaper-soiling infant, a mere babe in arms, teach you and me about morality? Well, the answer might surprise you. And to do the surprising, I've invited Paul Bloom, professor of cognitive science and psychology at Yale University, back to the show. This is his third go-round with us. The last time uh, we spoke about his book, How Pleasure Works, and the time before that, Paul described some downright ingenious experiments that developmental psychologists have been using to explore the mental abilities of juvenile humans. And when I say juvenile, I mean young. Too young to talk, too young to crawl, too young to know their bums from their elbows. But not too young, apparently, to know right from wrong, at least in some elementary sense. A recent body of research seems to be showing that babies, babies not long out of the womb, are already beginning to distinguish good behavior from bad. They are, in effect, making ethical judgment calls, and at a far earlier age than almost anybody would have thought possible. It is a mind-blowing set of discoveries, really, and it brings a whole lot of new evidence to bear on some very old questions. For instance, just how much of our moral sensibility is evolutionary, is baked in from birth, and how much of it is learned later, you know, through experience. Do we start out pure and virtuous? And is it the mean old world and its malign influence that causes us to break bad when we do? Or is it the other way around? Are we beasts at heart who have to be domesticated through intensive training and a carefully cultivated social conscience? Is it one or the other? Or is it maybe something more complicated? I think the question, are we naturally good or evil, is the wrong question. Yeah, well, I get to ask the wrong question, just as long as Paul Bloom provides the right answer, which is uh, what he has tried to do in his latest book. It is called Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil. It is just out, and I was just delighted to get Paul back on the show to talk about it. Paul, you and I have talked before, but I have never really asked you how you got started in this field. How did you become a baby shrink? <laughs> well, I'm actually not a professional baby shrink. My wife is a baby shrink. Um, I'm interested in different things, uh, pleasure and morality and religion. And, um, and babies are something which my, my wife, Karen Wynn, studies. And so my recent book and a lot of my recent work has been sort of a chance overlap in our, in our interests. She's interested in babies and morality, and I'm interested in babies and morality. Well, you work together at the, um, what you call the Baby Lab, the Yale Infant Cognition Center. Karen, your wife, Karen Wynn, I guess you're saying is the principal researcher, but you've been sort of pig piggybacking on her work? Exactly. So she runs the Infant Cognition Center. I run the Mind and Development Lab. But my recent interest in the origins of morality has been done all in collaboration with her. These are all experiments that are piggybacked off the work of her and her students. So let me back up and sort of restate my question. Tell me about your beginnings as a psychologist and, dare I say, something of a philosopher as well. I, it took me a long time to find my interests. My, my brother, Howard, is severely autistic. And when I was a kid and a teenager, I would work with autistic uh, adolescents. 
and I thought I'd become a clinical psychologist. So at McGill, as an undergraduate, I was involved in clinical psychology, and I, uh, I did work uh, on the side with different clinical populations. And I wasn't very good at it, and I wasn't very motivated by it, but it was what I was doing. And then I sort of um, got connected with Professor John McNamara. And John is a very unusual professor. Sadly, was an unusual professor. He died, he died many years ago. And, um, and he was fascinated by the overlap between philosophy and psychology. And I, he took me under his wing, and then I, I just began, I, I found this work so extraordinary. So I dropped all my clinical pretensions, and I became interested in broader, I think, deep and theoretically interesting questions. And he sent me to MIT, where I worked with Susan Carey and then with Steven Pinker. And, um, and so I've been lucky enough uh, to be able to explore issues that have just, whatever issues have caught my eye. And the issues that caught my eye have always tended to be an overlap between psychology and philosophy. Mm. Yeah, in the reading of, uh, that I've done of your work, uh, you know, I've seen you name drop, you know, John Locke, David Hume. And, of course, in the most recent book, a lot of Adam Smith, all, you know, 18th uh, and 17th century Enlightenment philosophers. Nary a mention of Freud or Maslow or any of the, you know, famous names of 20th century psychology. No, um, I think the philosophers, really the philosophers of that period, really got it right. They were asking the right questions. They were using the right methods. I honestly think as, as, as anybody interested in the human mind has a lot more to learn from somebody like uh, Adam Smith than from somebody like uh, Freud or Maslow. <laughs> well, they had the right methods, you say, but theirs were mostly sort of sitting in, in their studies uh, pondering these questions. Uh, they did not go out and investigate them empirically the way you and Karen have done. That's right. So, so Adam Smith was filled with insights, insights about what we have wired within us, insights about punishment and sympathy and love and retribution and feelings of community, but he lacked a lab. <laughs> and, and, and I think he lacked the methods to address this, either with adults or with children or with babies. And so um, I'd like to think that we're doing some theoretical contributions of our own, but, but I think the main thing, if Adam Smith was to come to life and come by New Haven and walk into my office, the main thing I could do to impress him would be to tell him about our findings. <laughs> and, and so... So you're right that, that those philosophers and philosophers more generally have often relied on intuition. And the intuition, I think, was, was dead-on correct when it came to people like them. But intuition fails us when we try to think about hunter-gatherers or people from very different societies or babies. Or they, babies, yeah. Or babies. Then you need to go into the lab. Uh, a lot of those philosophers, or at least some of them, did talk about the developing human being. Again, in abstraction. I mean, they didn't go out and look at infants. That would probably be beneath them, you know. Um, that was women's work, right? It's true. Alison Gopnik um, says, I think, very correctly that so much of philosophy has been built around adult interactions with strangers. And it's part because philosophers have been totally uninterested in the family, in babies, and children, in, in women, um, because these were sort of, you know, often very privileged men who are very interested, and I think what's a very interesting moral realm, but the moral realm of family, and, and, and particularly children, just didn't capture their eyes. And so, um, so I, I do think it's sort of one of the many advantages in the fact that psychology and philosophy are more diverse nowadays is that our attention is being drawn to areas we hadn't otherwise studied. So in fact, one of the things I, I argue in Just Babies is that... Um, 
is that moral psychology and moral philosophy has suffered in that we've been so obsessed with how we think about strangers, but we haven't really asked about our fundamental moral intuitions towards our family. Hmm. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that for sure. Let's talk about what you once described to me as a revolution, though, in um, cognitive psychology, developmental psychology, as a result of these studies, studies like the ones uh, your wife Karen, uh, other people at Yale like Kylie Hamlin, and then folks at other famous labs around the country, Allison Gopnik at Berkeley, and uh, Elizabeth, is it pronounced Spelka? It's Spelke. Spelke at Harvard. There's a whole yeah, you know, uh, network of you guys doing there, this work. There's a great community at uh, Rene Bayarge University of Illinois has to get added to any list. Um, and in fact, this, this revolution started a few decades ago. People like uh, Spelke and Bayarge started to, to use subtle and powerful methods to ask what babies know about the world. And, you know, common sense and a lot of research would tell you they don't know anything. <laughs> they, you know, they're babies, they're meatloaf, they just sit there. How could they know so much? Yeah. And, and what, what Spelke and Arjun did was they started to use methods like looking time, like where do babies look, what captures their attention, what surprises them. And using these methods, they made what I think is one of the great discoveries of, of psychology, which is that even the youngest of babies have a rich understanding of the physical world. So they know that if you, uh, you hold a ball in midair and you let go of it, it should fall. If it doesn't fall, they're surprised. They're surprised if one object goes through another. Um, they're surprised when objects lack solidity and boundedness. And then the same researchers and a few others jumped in and started to use the same methods to look at babies' social understanding. Um, they're understanding that uh, people are agents, people move on their own, people react systematically to others. And what we've been doing, and, and other labs as well, over the last five, ten years, is looking at the moral understanding. Babies' appreciation of who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, who should be rewarded, who should be punished. And, and this is, I think, the next step in this revolution of, of how we think about our, our human nature and our early origins. And it's, it's just exciting work to be involved in. Uh, you and I have talked uh, in detail about how these studies work, uh, some of them at least, uh, and I just want to, rather than repeat it all here, I'll just, you know, attempt to summarize a few things, and you jump in and set me straight if I go awry. But um, when you're dealing with really young infants, obviously they can't tell you what they're thinking. Um, and so you guys have discovered, you, your fraternity of baby researchers, uh, that you can use certain signs uh, and you can correlate these uh, in such a way that you think you know what babies are getting at, uh, either by, say, reaching towards something, which seems to be a sign of preference. So if you stage a little puppet show in which one puppet's a good guy and one's a bad guy, and afterwards the baby reaches over toward the good guy, that shows that they prefer the good guy. Or even younger babies who aren't so good at coordinating their hands um, seem to show the same kind of uh, favorable bias by looking longer at one thing or another. And again, a lot of work correlating these looks and these reaches with good and bad things, building up, you know, a pretty substantial body of evidence that they really do mean what you think they mean. That's a that's a, a, a perfect summary. Um, and 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 one thing which you, which which is important to underlie is that there's no single study is going to tell us much. You know, we do studies after studies, and and whenever you get a lot of data from one method or showing babies one thing, you say, okay, that's fine, but you have to you have to get converging evidence from multiple sources. 
So the baby researchers are using methods from reaching, from looking, some of them from uh, more direct neural methodologies, from uh, what babies choose to give to one character, take from one character, babies' facial expressions. You use all of these different methods, and you expose them to a range of different situations, such as uh, characters helping and harming each other, characters hitting and caressing each other, stealing from. And so, so it's by now we have enough research from multiple labs using multiple methods in multiple situations to get a sort of sense that babies do have some moral sense from the start. And these are studies on uh, babies all the way down to like three months old, right? Our young, the research we've done that's, that's been youngest was with three-month-olds. Um, now, there's other research that looks at much younger kids, even newborns, and there what they're looking at is not so much moral understanding but moral reactions. So we see as babies uh, respond to the pain of other babies, that when the other babies are crying or so on, with pain themselves. They, they don't like seeing other babies in pain. They'll cry when they hear other babies cry. As soon as they're able to move enough to do so, they'll try to soothe other creatures by stroking them, you know, or trying to calm them. And so even in the youngest babies, you see some sort of reactions. The signs of moral understanding don't emerge till about three months of age. Maybe because that's when the brain structures are in place, or maybe that's just because that's the youngest we could find them. Um, do you think moral understanding is um, an accurate term? Understanding rather than, say, I don't know, instincts, reflexes? I think understanding is the right term. Um, instincts and, and, and reflexes refer to sort of simple actions. But these aren't necessarily actions we're looking at. We're looking at reactions. We're looking at expectations, at, at, at beliefs. Now, you know, I, I've argued that this is very limited in some sense. So babies have a lot to learn, and in some way their, their understanding is, um, is sort of barely deserves to be called morality. It's sharply delineated relative to adults. But I do think it is understanding. Um, some of the things you have found, or you, and by you I mean the collective you, developmental psychologists doing this kind of work, uh, are that you know, babies show a distinct and predictable preference for good behavior in these little morality plays, whether they're puppet shows or sometimes they're very abstract animations of objects, some mm -hmm. seeming to be helpful to each other and others seeming to be, you know, harmful to each other. Um, if they're given the opportunity to reward good behavior, they do that or punish uh, bad behavior by taking away a treat, let's say, from a puppet who has stolen a ball from another puppet. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> or even um, showing a preference for puppets who themselves bestow rewards or punishment. So having some sense of what good, just, you know, social behavior is on the part of others. Again, that's, that's, that's a great summary. I mean, that's the last one that really caught our eye because we have dozens of studies, over hundreds of babies, finding that babies prefer the good guy. And the question is, when don't they prefer the good guy? And one situation where that holds is when somebody is punishing a bad guy. There they like people who do bad things, so long as they're doing bad things to, to individuals who are themselves bad. <laughs> and this is interesting. This is, it, it hints at a sort of somewhat sophisticated sense of justice. Well, it is amazing. And, of course, if you were able to tell this to David Hume or Adam Smith or... John Locke, or I don't know, maybe Jean-Jacques Rousseau, yes. they'd be shocked that little babies could do this, right? I think that it's very surprising and speaks to sort of the broader philosophical questions 
that these philosophers were interested in. Um, questions are, are we naturally good? Are we naturally evil? Are we blank slates, or do we come into the world for rich understanding? And I think to some extent we can start now have data that bear on these questions. Well, you know, one is tempted to jump to the conclusion that we are naturally good. All the things you're, you're saying that babies incline toward are things that we oh-so-moral adults would uh, approve of. But I'm not ready to go there yet because, I mean, for one thing, as I read your book, you know, you see how limited this kind of moral sensibility is. That's right. I'm not ready to go there, too. I think, I think the question, are we naturally good or evil, is the wrong question. Or, or to put it a different way, if I get that question, I tend to answer yes. We, you know, we, we have both good and evil within us. So for one thing, um, along with this moral sense, are a lot of selfish appetites. Um, there's a, you know, desire for benefit for yourself, for those who are close to you. Um, occasionally, desires that run against your moral sense. And certainly babies and young children have those. And then the second thing is, the moral sense we have is, I think, tragically limited. So I think what we have been bequeathed by biological evolution is with... Um, a moral sense that extends naturally to, the, to ourselves and those around us, but it doesn't extend towards strangers. In fact, it, it shows a strong in-group preference. So just along with every study we've done finding this rich moral sense for babies, there's another study that finds that babies sharply differentiate between those that belong to their group and those that belong to other groups, and that they favor their own group over other groups. So to the extent that you and I, as moral adults, recognize that there are, you know, rights that all humans should have, that, 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 there's, that there's moral codes that should be followed for everybody, we've, got, we've transcended our biological inheritance. Now, in these little, you know, scenarios that you guys, uh, you researchers, have staged for kids, for babies, those are strangers, right? Those puppets or those little blocks and triangles that are doing good or bad things? They definitely are. And in fact, in fact so, so what we see is we see a, 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 what psychologists call a dissociation, a difference. On the one hand, when it comes to making moral judgments, babies are powerful. They, they, could judge, um, they could judge total strangers, even strangers that aren't really people, but animated figures. They could find a good guy and find a bad guy. But then when you have other studies that look at how babies themselves treat others or how they respond to others, or for that matter, what do you do about young children, even older children? There you find it's nowhere near as general. So it's true babies could recognize that a stranger could be a good guy or a bad guy. But what they don't do is they don't care about a stranger. When they have, things to, when they have resources to give out, when they have to, to make a, a choice, they'll always choose the, the individual who's closer to themselves. They know uh, which side their bread is buttered on. They do, and, and it, it's... it's somewhat shocking. I mean, there's sort of an instinctive parochialism, this, this natural bigotry um, of the sort that we disapprove of as adults. So, for instance, Katie Kinsler has these lovely studies where she, she goes up to a baby and there's two individuals, and the baby's English-speaking, an American baby, and one of the individuals speaks English, the other speaks French. Babies like the English-speaking one. They'll prefer to, to approach the English-speaking one. They'll prefer to learn, to learn from it. They'll prefer to give a gift to the English-speaking person. What if it's an English-speaking person and a person with a mild French accent, but also English-speaking? Still, babies go for the one without the accent. It's as if very early on they zoom in on language as a perfect indicator of in-group versus out-group, 
and they strongly favor the in-group. And the opposite would go for French babies, I'm sure. Exactly. And in fact, to be careful, the same investigators study babies in Paris. <laughs> now, now, one question which is, has, has interested a lot of us is what about race? And the findings there are interesting. You test very young babies or even like two-year-olds, and like it's a white kid, and you, you have, a, they have to choose who to interact with, a black person or a white person. Early on, they don't care about race. Skin color is not a natural cue to in-group, out-group. It's only kids, and this includes many kids around the world, who are raised in society where race is signaled as relevant that seem to take race as important. So if they end up going to a preschool where the whites sit on one side of the room and the blacks in another, they'll very quickly differentiate on the basis of race. On the other hand, if the white kids and the black kids just interact freely and there's no, no natural distinction for them to glom onto, race will mean nothing to them. Well, that's what, you know, liberal-minded folks would hope for, right? That uh, it really is social conditioning and not some innate bigotry. I think uh, liberal-minded folks hope for this, and, and in that regard, they're right. It's not that babies uh, are sort of natural egalitarians and ignore groups. Babies are, and children are obsessed with breaking the world up into different groups. But it is true that color in and of itself isn't a natural way to break things up. If its race becomes relevant for a child, as soon as they realize it's a proxy for social groups, as soon as they realize that it really does matter. So if it doesn't matter to the adults and doesn't matter to people around them, it won't matter to the kids. But when uh, judging true strangers, that is, you know, things like puppets, you know, uh, or animations, they can be pretty impartial, it sounds like, which uh, makes me think that you've got a reality show uh, concept right there for the for the making, uh, baby court. <laughs> <laughs> they, they they could be impartial. They could be impartial. It's so so in in a sense, yes. I mean, I mean, here's one episode of Baby Court. This is uh, <laughs> Jessica Somerville and 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 her colleagues. Um, they the baby see a char- They see two characters. Um, one character has two things and divvies them up um, evenly for two other people. The other one gives two. Uh, one, two to one person, zero to the other person. According to Baby Court, the second character is a bad guy. Mm. The, one, the one who divides up things evenly is a good guy. Mm-hmm. The one who divides things up is, is unevenly is a bad guy. On the other hand, um, when babies themselves are young children, this will be like two and three-year-olds, have resources, they are, they are far from generous. There's a million studies which contrast kids and adults in, in how they like to divvy up resources. And they all converge on, on the same two findings. One is, um, on the whole, adults are much more generous than children. And the second one is that when children do give away things, they're strongly biased to give away to those who they're sort of close to than those who are strangers. And in, in, in that regard, I think they're just like adults, only magnified. Right, right. I mean, their definition of their in-group is obviously smaller than ours is, but... Even the most virtuous of us usually favors our own kin. I mean, <laughs> even Peter Singer has admitted that, uh, of course, he gives more to his own children than he does to perfect strangers across the world, you know, even though he advocates for more of a, a universalist uh, magnanimity. That's right. And, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to Singer's utilitarianism and his, you know, his, his acknowledgement that, you know, a starving African should matter just as much to us as a starving American. 
But there are some distinctions that I think are so central to being human that I don't think we can override them, and I'm not even confident that we that we should. So it's one thing to say that I shouldn't care when it comes to charitable giving, whether the person's black or white. But it seems to ask too much of me to say that I should, say, let my child go through great agonies um, just so I could help strange children in another part of the world. Yeah, no one's pushed it that far, or very few people, I should say. I'm sure there's somebody out there who has, but very few people have pushed it that far. But, you know, if you look at history, and your book does look at history a bit, uh, and I'm, I know you've read Steven Pinker's book about the decline of violence and historical view that things are getting better, because to some extent uh, our circle of concern and our sense of connection has widened beyond our families, beyond our local neighbors, our tribes, uh, and in some cases embraces even other species now. You know, we really care about animals now to a degree that we never did before historically. That's right. So I've been very influenced by scholars like Steven Pinker and Peter Singer and Robert Wright who talk about moral change over history. And I think that the way you're describing it is very apt. It, it's what Singer describes as the expanding moral circle, which is the original moral circle, which we get from biology, is very small. It's us, it's our friends, it's our family. And you still see the original moral circle in small-scale hunter-gatherer groups where their response to a stranger from another tribe is fear, is often fear and disgust and violence. But what's happened in at least parts of the world is our circles expanded and expanded and expanded. So we still make distinctions between families and not families, friends and not families, not friends, even our country versus other countries. But, but, but we acknowledge that the moral circle includes Strangers from other places it includes non-human animals. It, and, and in the boundaries, there's a lot of debate. So I'm, I'm often talking to sort of liberal students, and they tend to believe the bigger the moral circle, the better. And then I ask them, would you extend it to fetuses and embryos? Mm-hmm. And, you know, intelligent people can disagree about that. But the fact that somebody could say, no, that's too far. The right of a, of a woman matters more than the right of fetus embryo. Fetus embryos shouldn't be in the moral circle at all, some might say. And that shows that sort of as, as, as smart people, it's not always the bigger the better, that we can sort of intelligently argue over how big the circle should be. Well, I'd venture to say that none of us are perfectly consistent either, no matter what our stated position you know, <laughs> that's right. look that's at real right. life and, and how we make decisions often uh, sort of blindly. Uh, we, we can't, it's very hard to stick with any kind of principle through and through. That's right. Thinking about morality, I'm confronted with my own inconsistencies. Um, oh, God. I'm, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, though I find the treatment of non-human animals to be morally appalling. Um, I give some money to charity, but nowhere near enough. And, um, and I feel... In some ways, studying morality has, has turned out to be a little bit of a curse because um, I may not be the most moral person in the world, so I'm confronted with my limitations. Well, and I'd, and I'd say that you know your consumption of resources and mine too is uh, you know causing other people to go without you know in various parts of the world. I mean, very hard to ignore that fact. I have a carbon footprint the size of Madagascar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so yes. Uh, I, I, I'll plead guilty to that, too. By the way, getting back to those those infant sort of moral preferences, the ones we talked about before, for fair play, uh, for good behavior toward others, the things that they seem to like in these little uh, charades that you guys put mm-hmm. on, um, that's the majority of them. There is a minority who prefer the bad guy, right? Yes. 
And um, what and about those babies? Should we lock them up right now? And yeah, just... so we often, you know, is this a psychopath test? Are we <laughs> yeah, finding little go. baby psychopaths? <laughs> yeah. And the answer is we don't know. Um, so so one, one possibility, the less interesting one, is that there's always babies who fail an experiment, just like there's always adults who fail an experiment. You know, if you ask 100 adults, one, what does 1 plus 1 equal? You know, about you know, 5% of them will just say 7 or make a joke or whatever. And kids are the same way. Kids will sometimes respond just out of, out of contrariness or boredom or our babies will fall asleep and so on. So one answer is just that all babies have these capacities, but they don't all manage to show it. Another possibility is that these are special babies. And um, one way to test this, which we're doing, which is currently underway, is you test the same babies over and over again. And you find, are these babies somehow deficient on these moral tasks? Um, in a way that they aren't deficient more generally on other sort of baby tasks that designed, that designed to test their attention or knowledge. And it, it might well be that there are human differences in moral understanding. We know, after all, that there's human differences in empathy and compassion. People, adults and babies, vary a lot in how they respond to the pain of others. So maybe that there's some differences in understanding as well. Do you guys tell the parents the results of these experiments? Your baby likes villains? <laughs> your, your, your little taunt has a taste for evil. Is a decided to embrace the dark side. <laughs> um, we, we, we tell the parents how their babies do. They could actually often get to observe the experiment. And, um, and, and you know, some babies do different things. But, uh, but, but we don't tell them. I mean, it, like all of these, like all studies of this sort, the, the data m- matter in the aggregate. So, um, and it's possible in some cases that our, that our measures aren't sensitive enough or aren't done well. So we'll tell parents how their baby does, but we'll tell them the truth as well, that, that we don't know what this means, anything. Right, right. Um, am I right in thinking that the, uh, you know, the inference, when you discover a baby making judgments like this at the age of three months, that this has got to be inborn. This has got to be, you know, in a sense, built in, hardwired. Uh, and I know it even sounds foolish asking, but can we absolutely rule out that that baby hasn't already been absorbing information, uh, you know, from observation before the, the age of three months? No, it's, it's actually a fair question. Um, so a lot of critics of this work, and this work does have its critics, would say, look, I'm, there's been some learning has taken place. I mean, we're not testing brand newborns. And in fact, even babies in the womb do some learning. How do you know that that's not responsible for it? And part of my answer is that, I don't doubt that to some extent some degree of experience is necessary for these moral capacities to flourish. I mean, even capacities that are hardwired in the sense of, say, our visual system requires some experience to get going. And it might be some social experience is necessary to get this off the ground. But the question which, which is more, which I'm, I'll fight back on, is whether or not it's learned. And we, we construct our studies to be unusual so that they do not mimic experiences in a baby's everyday life. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so it, it seems to us that the baby's responses to these experiences suggest sort of a fundamental understanding that they start with. Um, and it's an empirical claim. If, if somebody wanted to say, no, here's a theory of how it could be learned that makes various predictions and so on, um, then, then that would be a, you know, a, a, an interesting counterpart to our work and be stuff well worth taking into consideration. 
And we're also doing experiments um, with babies on a very, with very different backgrounds. So most of our experiments are done with a sort of a typical New Haven population. So these are from a diverse uh, SES, diverse ethnicity, diverse you know, parental occupation. They're very different kids, and it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. But up to now, we haven't been testing kids who are raised in really bad situations, like crack babies. And, um, and in collaboration with the people at the Yale Child Study Center, um, Karen Wynn is starting to do those experiments to test real babies who are really at risk, who have serious problems uh, in other parts of their lives. Hmm. And it could go either way. I mean, it could be that these babies will fail at these experiments, either because of their upbringing or because of biological problems that they have, or it could be that it doesn't make a difference, hmm. that, this, that these systems are so robust that a moral understanding shows up in all humans regardless of how they're raised. I think one of the, the things that's remarkable is not just that babies seem to have you know, moral intuitions earlier than people would have guessed, but that they can actually uh, you know, sort of extract the moral meaning of, in some cases, an animation that consists of like a triangle helping a square up a hill, you know, therefore a good triangle. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing to me. That's so abstract. It, 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 it is, although, and you could go online and watch this. You could see the video. I should do that, yeah. They, they, they jump out at you as, as people, as individuals. Well, you and me, yeah. But, I mean, obviously that capacity to see the most abstract kind of geometric figure as a person with intention is itself a cognitive marvel. I agree. And when I talked about the early discoveries about babies, talking about there's the physical understanding, there's the moral understanding, sorry, the social understanding, Part and parcel of social understanding was exactly that. People were stunned to discover that babies could interpret moving geometrical figures, sometimes even dots zipping around a screen, as if they were animate beings. And this suggests that, you know, one theory of our social understanding is you start off learning all about people, and then you finally get more abstract. And so when you, when you think about a, a, an animated creature darting around as, a, as a, it had beliefs and desires, that's based on an analogy with people. Mm-hmm. Our bet is that that's wrong, that, that what we start off instead is fairly abstract conditions on what it is to be thought of as, as a creature with goals and desires and beliefs. And these abstract conditions can be met by a person, but they can also be met by a red blob that's moving in the right <laughs> way. Mm-hmm. Um, so just summarize for me what you now think of as uh, the kind of timeline of baby moral development. Starting, let's say, from your the youngest group you've experimented with, the three months old, through let's say a couple years of age. I think what you have by about the first birthday are the rudiments of morality. You have a sense of compassion and empathy. You have uh, some intuitions about uh, fairness and justice, and some capacity to tell right from wrong. What you see in the second year of life is all of that sort of expands. And then you get a flowering of certain moral emotions, too, like pride and shame and guilt and righteous anger. Maybe some of that shows up earlier, but we get the clearest evidence for children who are, about, who are in their second years of, year of life, between their first and second birthday. After the second birthday, then children become cultural creatures. So I think in some societies, at some times, that moral system was where they began, what they began with and what they ended with. 
but not for us, not for a baby raised in the 21st century uh, of most of the countries of the world. There, their morality expands and develops. So what, our notion of in-group and out-group expand to include you know, our country, our religion, maybe to include all people. Um, and I think a really important part of the process is we start to become more conscious, deliberative, reasoning beings, and we start to think about morality. And so we could come to conclusions. We, people love to talk about morality. They love to debate morality. And through this, you could get moral progress, moral accomplishments. Um, we weren't born knowing that slavery was wrong. But at some point in human history, people realized it was, and they persuaded other people. And now everybody knows it's wrong. Well, and not everybody. Not everybody. <laughs> not everybody. And in fact, I think to some extent... Um, Morality is a lot like science, where you have this, this accumulation where smart people come up with ideas, and then they develop and they spread through the population. But just as with science, there are islands of humanity where, where they haven't gotten the news. No doubt there are people who think the earth is flat, um, and no doubt there are people who are unaware that slavery is wrong or unaware that it's wrong to say discriminate on the basis of sex or race. What, what about the terrible twos? Um... Are the terrible twos, you know, as all parents know, this period when kids start acting out, you know, often having tantrums and seem like the essence of ornery selfishness. Um, is that universal? Is that true across all cultures? I don't know. It's definitely been attested to across many cultures. I don't know if enough work has been done to see whether it's a human universal. Um, but the terrible twos are, as parents will tell you, they, they are genuinely terrible. Um, <laughs> people who study human violence have, de have determined, um, just using quantitative methods, that the terrible twos are the peak of human violence. In other words, we are at our most aggressive and most dangerous at age two. If you could take a two-year-old and transform him into an adult with the physical and cognitive capacities of an adult, he would be the most terrifying creature on earth. He'd be a creature. The only reason why two-year-olds don't destroy the world is that they aren't physically strong enough and they aren't smart enough to use weapons. So, so where does this fit into the picture of the gradually improving, <laughs> the gradually more responsible uh, human uh, growing up? You know. Yeah, it, it it suggests that that just as with adults, kids are at war with themselves. So. You have all this moral understanding, and these moral emotions, this empathy and shame and pity. We also have desires. There's things you want. There, there's things that upset you. There's people you want to harm, sometimes for moral reasons, sometimes for other reasons. And so within each of us, you, there's this tension between your selfish desires, which favor, you know, favor certain outcomes, and then your moral understanding that make you into a good person. And I think for um, somebody in the terrible twos, um, often their, their, their rage and their frustration overrides their moral sense. I mean, to, to go back to Freud, I mean, I'll be sympathetic to, to one of his theoretical ideas, which is you say the id at that stage is far more powerful than the superego. What do you think of the superego idea? Um, you know, the idea that we... Uh, and, and this may not be doing justice to the subtlety of Freud's ideas, but, that, you know, we internalize a kind of social consciousness that keeps a lookout on our own psyche. So, so Freud was, was um, an empiricist when it came to morality. He believed that everything we have within us that's moral 
is the product of our interactions with our environment. That we don't start off with superego. Superego is a developmental product. Mm-hmm. And and the claim I've been making in the work, which I think is supported by a lot of, of evidence now, is that that's not entirely right. So a lot of our morality we're born with. Even without parents and even without a moralistic society, we would be creatures who feel guilt and shame. However, Freud is right that there is a lot we internalize from our society that, that does structure our morality. And he's right as, as well in one of his key insights. So he says at one point, I, I don't remember the quote, but he says at one point, people are tempted to see the id as stupid and, and, and animal-like, this, this source of pleasure and so on, and the superego as smart and rational and reasonable. Mm-hmm. But Freud says that's just the wrong way to look at it. They're both stupid. The id is this creature that wants everything and wants it now. But the superego is like this, this parent from hell screaming at you. You should be ashamed at yourself. You should be disgusted at yourself. And, and often you see in adults and in children people being, having their lives ruined, being powerfully influenced by moral codes that as rational beings they know that, that are mistaken, but, but they can't override them. So people, a lot of people's attitudes about sexuality, for instance, I think are, are really are understood in a Freudian sort of superego way, where they feel horribly ashamed of something, even though intellectually they know they didn't do something wrong. So you can internalize all kinds of taboos and prohibitions and things we might even consider utter nonsense, you know, uh, due to social pressure. Yes. Um, it, 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 it's like the Philip Larkin poem, which I won't quote here. But, uh, <laughs> they but, F you up. But, yeah, they F you up. Um, and, and, and everything, you know, all of the things that, that were in their own head causing them trouble end up in yours. By and, the way, uh, he, he was talking about parents. Yes. Uh. Your, your, your mom and dad, they may not mean to, but they do. <laughs> and um, and and the, the morality I'm interested in is sort of this biological morality, then supplemented by reason and deliberation. But you're right to point out that there's also the sort of stupid morality that you know a child who is young is told you know how horrible masturbation is. As an adult, you know, feels ashamed and has all these problems, um, and it's the legacy of some bad moral ideas that are very difficult to shake. Have you read uh, Jesse Baring's most recent book, Perv? Oh, I, 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 I blurbed it even. Um, oh, you I, did? That's right. Um, I forgot. <laughs> Jesse, Bar- Jesse Baring's book, Perv, is, is wonderful in many dimensions. He's a, he's, you know, a very smart guy, very funny. And what he does in this book is he talks all about um, the full range of human sexuality. Um, some of it is honestly shocking, like jaw-droppingly shocking, somewhat upsetting. And, and what I like about his book, one of the many things I like about his book is he has a lot of sympathy for people who have sexual desires that are ugly, aberrant, and, and, and often destructive. So what he does in his book, for instance, he says, you know, he says you take people who get sexual pleasure from sex with children. And these are, you know, can be seen the worst people in the world. But what, what Bering says is, let's grant that they do terrible things and they have to be stopped. But then he says, imagine you yourself was one of those people. People don't choose their sexual desires. And what I like about Bering's book is he has sympathy for people who suffer from the desires, not just people who suffer from, from you know, as, as the result of these desires. He, it's, a, you know, it's a very deep look at why we disapprove 
you know, so strongly of what we call what we think of as deviant sexuality. That's right. And and you know, of course, that's changed. I mean, Jesse himself is gay, so he yep. in his lifetime has seen a big change in attitudes toward gay people. But he takes it farther. He looks at practices that are still considered way, way off limits. That's right. But he wants to draw a distinction between those that genuinely cause harm and those that really don't, if they're between consenting adults and so on and so forth. Uh, that's a moral standard that we as a society haven't really fully embraced yet. We have a lot of laws and a lot of injunctions against things that don't seem to necessarily do harm. And we don't even... You know, and I, I include myself. We don't always even stick to that principle, no harm, no foul. We yeah. often turn to another principle altogether, which is, is it gross? Does it yes. disgust us? And that's something, I, you know, I, I, I've always been interested in. I devote a chapter of my book called, that I call Bodies. And, and it's about the puzzle. Why? I mean, it, it's in some way an interesting intellectual puzzle. Why do we care so much? So, so, you know, you would yeah. imagine um, from a cold-blooded evolutionary point of view or a cultural point of view, straight men should welcome gay men, less competition. <laughs> so so they, they should, you know, be, be, be wired up to, to hug them and give them, give them presents and say, welcome, you know, be part of my group. This is terrific. But, but straight men don't. Straight men often, you know, hate gay people. And, and I, think, I, I think the solution is there's sort of a miswiring. And the miswiring is, a connection between disgust and morality. Um, there's many things that gross us out. They gross us out for reasons that have nothing to do with morality, but just that we're grossed out by corporeal things like sweat and semen and blood and pus. And unless we're turned on, we're probably grossed out. And I think the connection is that often things that gross us out are viewed as morally wrong. And, and I think it's one of the accomplishments of a civil society saying, you know, when the two of you, whether you're two men or two women or two old people or two handicapped people, when the two of you have sex, I don't want to watch it. It, it really would be upsetting to me. But that has nothing to do with whether or not you're doing something wrong. Mm. But I think some people haven't got there yet. Mm. Mm. Well, you make the point, though, too, that interestingly enough, disgust, which seems so deeply physical, so, so you know, primitive, babies aren't really big on disgust. They're, they're okay with just about anything, right? They'll put anything in their mouths, for, for instance. <laughs> to the shock of many parents, even the most obvious example of disgust, which is rejection of feces, babies don't seem to have. So, you know, um, Freud said, uh, Freud said is that, you know, they are reluctant to part from their feces. And sometimes, <laughs> he also uh, said they were polymorphously perverse. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it makes me happy. My kids are now in the teenage years. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, uh, then disgust kicks in, and I think I think Freud blamed toilet training, but I think the evidence is just that there's sort of a neurological clock, and you don't get fully disgusted until you're somewhat old, like four or five. You're mobile, you're you're able to avoid your own body waste, and then it kicks in, and then it could have you know it has extraordinary consequences. It has um, it, it 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 influences our religious codes, our moral codes, and. I think it's mostly for the bad. I think that disgust corrodes morality in terrible ways. Mm. Well, it seems like uh, disgust can apply to almost anything. Um, you know, depending on your tastes or your cultural milieu, you could find a person's body hair disgusting, or their manners disgusting, or their politics disgusting, or their Madagascar-sized carbon footprint disgusting. Uh, it's an interesting question. <laughs> it seems so arbitrary. 
It can be arbitrary. I would suggest that, that, that it's, it's arbitrary and it could be all sorts of things, but it's not fully arbitrary in that disgust is always corporeal. Well, you so, feel it corporeally. Yes, but, it, but also it, it, people use the rhetoric of disgust broadly. So you might say, you know, oh, I'm disgusted at this, the problems of Obamacare. Right. Or I'm disgusted at people respond to Obamacare. And my contention is, no, you aren't. Uh, That's not real disgust. Uh, That's just using... It's like me saying, you know, I, I lust after that sports car. Well, I don't literally lust after it. I don't literally <laughs> feel sexual arousal. Well, it. you read Jesse Baring's book. That is possible. <laughs> that, that probably is one of the fetishes he discusses. <laughs> but in my case, I just mean I really want it, as if it were lust. And I think when people say I'm disgusted at, you know, I don't know, somebody's tax plan, they aren't really disgusted. I think to get really disgusted, you need to deal with bodies. You need to deal with hair and meat and flesh and skin. And so I don't think we can really be disgusted at somebody's um, clothes, but I think we can be really disgusted by people's bodies. And I, I think the story of the role of disgust in morality is very different from the story of judgment and, and compassion, empathy, anger, shame. Those other things evolved for morality and are part of our human system for morality. Well, disgust, extension to right and wrong, is accidental. It's an accidental byproduct. It just so happens that we find people and what people do disgusting. This is a negative emotion, and this leads to moral outrage. Um, well, we've talked a lot about the, the research you and colleagues have done in developmental psychology. In fact, we said you piggybacked your conceptual research on the experimentation done by people like your wife, Karen Wynn. Um, let's try to put it all together then. So you guys collectively have discovered a lot of what might be called proto-moral behavior or impulses in, in babies as young as three months old. You know, a preference seemingly for good behavior and cooperation, uh, a preference for rewarding the good and punishing the bad, things like that. Um, I would go out on a limb and say that's not yet morality because morality requires an ability to make decisions and decide when to apply those kinds of judgments and who to apply them to. You need a really large and it could be fairly sophisticated framework of ideas to really become fully moral. Tell me your picture. So I'm somewhat sympathetic for that. If you, if, I mean, I don't know what you'd call what a two-year-old has as morality. In certain regards, it looks a lot like morality. He's telling good guys from bad guys. He's sympathetic to others in pain. He believes bad guys should be punished. He has notions of what's fair and what's not fair. And, you know, so, so I tend to call it morality. You could call it the foundations of morality and reserve the term morality for uh, once we get the capacity to consciously mull over these mm. and, and plan and so on. Mm. All I'd suggest is that by those criteria... It's not clear whether all humans, all human adults, have morality. <laughs> so, so not all of us are moral philosophers. And, and I think in some societies, there isn't that sort of conscious mulling and deliberation at the high level. I mean, or maybe there is. Oh, maybe not. But um, if we were to take you know, sort of the, those foundational elements, uh, fair play and uh, doing right by others, the problem with babies, I think you've already pointed out, is that initially at least, it applies only to their smaller you know, inner circle of family. Uh, and that could lead to a kind of mafia morality, right? Where you're, you're great to your fellow gang members, meanwhile murdering and pillaging outside that, that group, right? 
I think that's exactly exactly right. Uh, mafia morality isn't a phrase I've used, but I love it. I, I, I think that that's what we have. There's there's a scene in The Sopranos where, where Tony's talking to a psychiatrist, and he's, he's complaining bitterly about this guy who's a mass murderer, and he's been caught. And, it, and quickly, to the, to the viewer, we become aware that, that Tony's moral indignation has nothing to do with the murders the guy committed, but that the guy was going to become a rat and divulge uh, the family secrets to the cops. And, and, <laughs> and Tony's, Tony's moral indignation is full. He really thinks this guy has done something horribly wrong. He should be ashamed. Not of the murders, but again of the betrayal. And so we start off with a mafia morality. I think a mafia morality is a morality. It's just not the full-blown morality we're looking for. You, you write about the importance of feelings, emotions, moral emotions, I guess, uh, as opposed to moral ideas. So empathy, compassion, maybe outrage at injustice, these gut reactions to moral situations being really important. I mean, do, we wouldn't want a person who is strictly rational, a psychopath who says, well, you know, I'm not going to kill someone today because actually I believe it's better for society and therefore for me not to kill, but I wouldn't mind killing someone. That would not be what we think of as a moral soul. My feelings are a little bit mixed. So, <laughs> so I, I, I do think that moral feelings are an essential part of morality. Um, and it's a very old insight coming from people like David Hume, who we were talking about before, who says, without a spark of caring, all the rational deliberation and reasoning in the world won't make you a good person, because it won't motivate you. Mm -hmm. You could appreciate that 100 people will suffer if you do this, but it doesn't bother you. So there's not a logical argument why you shouldn't do that. You need something, some sort of push. Um, but on the other hand, I think that once we have that push, I think we should rely on reason and deliberation much more than we do. I think we tend to be too much, we tend to fetishize the feelings a little bit too much when it comes to morality. Um, and this has some very bad consequences. So, you know, the, the next book I'm writing is exploring this very theme, and its, its tentative title is Against Empathy. And oh, it, wow. it, it argues that empathy is a, is a powerful, you know, in, in our day, everyday life, but empathy is biased, it is parochial, it is enumerate. It is because of empathy that people and whole societies care a little more about a little girl stuck in a well than they do about global warming. Mm -hmm. It's because of empathy that the idea of the idea of many school kids being gunned down captures the nation's attention, while um, the other 99.9% .9 of, of kids killed by guns, we are just blind to it because they don't trigger empathy in the right way. And so it skews our policy. It, it often... I mean, I'm talking about, about sort of cases where we're struck by suffering, but one of the results of being struck by suffering is, is that we go to war. Um, every war committed by a democratic country in, in, that I can think of has been sparked by stories of the suffering of victims. And I think that, that this is often a good reason to go to war, but I think humans are our best when cooler heads prevail. And we do a cold-blooded cost-benefit analysis of how many people are going to suffer if we do this versus that. And we let our analysis rule the day. I interviewed uh, Peter Singer some years ago, and we talked about that because he's often uh, depicted as kind of a cold-blooded, moral, computer kind of guy, ultimately weighing costs and benefits, um, willing to entertain scenarios in which bad things happen to some people in order to uh, make things better for the majority of people, you know, things like that. Yep. And 
you know, he's not real 100% that way. He just, he's trying to be a rigorous thinker on these problems. He's by no means a cold fish, at least in my yep. experience. Um, but I ended up thinking, you know, I want someone who is a moral computer uh, in positions of power because they really do have um, the welfare of large numbers in their hands. But I want someone who has strong feelings in my life, you know, as a friend, as a relative, lover, et cetera, you know. I yeah. wouldn't feel good about someone who was simply acting morally because they'd run the numbers. That's right, and that's how I cut things, too. I mean, I want, you know, in my, in my relationships, people who not only love me and care for me could feel empathy for me. If I'm suffering, I want them to suffer, too. <laughs> I want, if I'm happy, I want them to be happy. I want, them, yeah. I want my feelings to bleed on to them. Yeah, that's true. Um, on the other hand, I don't want a policy leader to say, well, you know, we had this vaccination program, and a child died from the vaccine. So I've, I, I wept. And I wept, and I felt empathy for the child and her family. And now I'm shutting down the program. Mm. I want somebody who says, "Well, that's just a shame. How many lives does the, does the vaccine save? If it saves a thousand, then this isn't even a hard problem." Mm. And, that's, and, and you know, that sounds to the parents of the child who died. That sounds like the most cold-blooded thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But but this is this is how we do policy. If we ever do something about global warming, raise gas taxes. I mean, it's like raising gas taxes enact cap-and-trade, what's going to happen is our change the way people suffer. People will lose jobs. People will, 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 will cry. They will be upset. Any, any large-scale policy decision over anything is going to involve human suffering. And what you want is you want people who care about people so much that they want to have the least amount of suffering possible. But empathy is ill-suited for those sorts of computations. Empathy focuses you on individuals, individuals who look like you. It focuses on, on people suffering, and it's oblivious to statistical gains. So if there's a policy that saves 100 lives in the future, that doesn't trigger any empathy buttons. That's just a number. Mm -hmm. While if there's a policy that kills somebody, there you get empathy in, in full flame. Right, right. And, of course, a, a lot of our policy choices are based on other emotions like fear. I mean, we yep. react more strongly to fear and hatred than we do to corresponding positive emotions. Um, and, this, and this is full in the justice system. So, yes. so there, there are countless demonstrations that when people decide what punishment they, they want to inflict on somebody, they do so based on the desire to make the, the person suffer. Oh, yeah. and, they're, and they're typically <laughs> entirely oblivious to the consequences of, of, of their acts. You know, and, and I want somebody to say, yeah, it's really good to make people suffer who did bad things, but you know what I'd really rather have? A lower crime rate. Right. Well, you, you know, I'm sure you know this old folktale. Um, a poor man is distraught because he has nothing and his neighbor has a cow. Uh, so he prays to God, and God answers his prayer and says, well, what would you have me do? And he says, kill his cow. <laughs> yes. And in fact, we find these impulses in, um, in, in kids. I, I talked before about how the morality of kids is quite deficient in some ways regarding adults. And when it comes to divvying up resources, we find kids will actually, they're not selfish. They're worse than selfish. They will give up resources in order to have relatively more than another person. <laughs> they would rather have one and the other person have nothing than everybody get two. Right, right. Yeah, you could run these experiments. Uh, there's, there's this whole world of... Um game like experiments where people yep. are 
are given certain opportunities, uh, but those opportunities um, are shared in some way with somebody else, and you see which uh, route they take. So kids might be given uh, two treats, and at the same time, another kid will be given two treats, or they can be given one and the other kid given nothing, and they'd prefer the latter simply because it's superior, even though they get less in the end. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And so I talked about those in the book, and, and I actually ended with a story somebody told me, which is a, it's a story of uh, an envious man who's visited by an angel. An angel says, you can get whatever you want, but your neighbor will get double. And the man thinks for a bit and says, I want you to pluck out one of my eyes. <laughs> And so this is this is a Jewish one, and I told it to my lab group, and one of my my graduate students said, you know, there's an Irish one too, and the punchline is, I want you to beat me half to death. <laughs> and and I, I think this is a, this this reflects human nature. Oh, that's a good one. Um, now looking at morality through history, by which I mean a kind of simplified and ideal history in which we've, you know, gone from cave people to maybe our better-run democratic institutions, uh, you can see, you know, the progress of a certain kind of rationality influenced by those, those same people we talked about early in the interview who you're quite fond of, the Enlightenment thinkers, yep. right? It does seem as though we become more enlightened in some ways, and we become kinder and gentler, it seems like, through history, right? Uh, I think that's right. More universalist, better at... Um, relating to the state of others, less selfish, also a little more sophisticated in our ability to apply moral principles uh, along the lines you were just talking about. Now, is it your position, though, that that history that I just talked about, however simplified, is kind of recapitulating uh, ontogeny, um, our own development? Um, I, think, I think there's definitely a parallel, but I think it's more the other way around. So what happens is, as a society, we come to have increasingly different views and I think better views about morality, then children being raised in our societies get the fruits of, of our cultural accomplishments. So it's sort of like science, which is um, kids start off with some sort of crude Aristotelian notion of motion, and then they come to learn about, the, you know, if they go to school, they learn about Newton, and they might learn about Einstein. And so it's not that society is sort of replaying what happens in kids' minds. Rather, kids are sort of picking up the fruits of our cultural innovations. Uh huh. Well, um, you are a believer in rationality, uh, and uh, you write, um, just as we've used reason to make scientific discoveries, such as the existence of dinosaurs, electrons, and germs, we've also used it to make moral discoveries, such as the wrongness of slavery. And then you go on to say, I'm aware that this position will seem outlandish to some. It is certainly unfashionable. The current trend in psychology and neuroscience is to downplay rational deliberation in favor of gut feelings and unconscious motivations. So the kind of old-fashioned idea that, by the way, you not only do you elaborate in this book, but you know Steven Pinker also had it pretty prominently in his book about the decline of violence. Yeah. That gee, civilization has civilized us. You yeah. know, and I think it's really interesting. You point out that we do have a rage these days for um, studies that show that we are operating mindlessly, I mean, in terms of conscious thinking. Yeah. Um, so so you, I think you nicely captured my view. I'm very pro-rationality. I'm <laughs> pro-enlightenment. It's, you know, it's, it's a strange old world. You I throw feel back? To lower my voice so that none of my colleagues hear me. <laughs> uh, well, you you're know. at Yale, too. Yeah. And, and the, you know, academics aren't quite the caricature that many people think. So there's not, 
even in the humanities, I think people will grant there's something to be said about being rational. Um, <laughs> um, we're going to get mail on this because people are going to say, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and, and, and I think the question is whether, whether moral progress has occurred and whether um, governments or leviathans, as Pinker calls them, have, have been for the good and, and not the bad are, um, are, uh, is an empirical question. And I think the evidence is very strongly in favor of it. Um, if I was, uh, you know, if, if, if it is a lot more dangerous to live in a hunter-gatherer society than to live in a modern industrial society. Um, homicide rates in, in the 21st century are among the smallest of all of human history. And, you know, choose, choose, choose your category, rights of, of gay people, treatment of non-human animals, and, and, and treatment of racial minorities. In that, and it, it's easy to find out cases in the here and now that are totally horrific, but there's just fewer of them. And now we have these moral ideas. So one reason why my view is so unpopular in psychology is because many of my colleagues, and I've done this work myself, have done research showing how we're swayed by uh, irrational factors beyond our control, by priming, by, by subtle influences. And, and many people believe that, that these findings taken together show that we're creatures of the unconscious, we're creatures of the, of the gut, and that rationality is largely an illusion. And I have an article coming out in February in the Atlantic, uh, which is going to take this dead on. But, but the point I make in my book, and the point I'll make now, is that um, this is true. There's a lot of evidence that we are swayed by irrational facts. But to claim that that's the whole story is like saying that because salt adds flavor to food, nothing else does. And it's, it's abundantly obvious that we use our reason and rationality to cope with our everyday lives. Well, what do you make of this sort of zeitgeisty pendulum swing uh, that we've been through a number of times, I think, depicting ourselves either as pure reasoners, you know, I think those enlightenment, right. those white male enlightenment guys um, were all head. Yeah. Uh, they didn't really pay much attention to the unconscious or, yep. uh, you know, more quote-unquote primitive impulses. Uh, on the other hand, these days, again, at a, at a time when society has never been uh, more advanced in a lot of ways, we love the idea of ourselves as kind of brute automata. I know I'm overstating it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think some of it is fashion. I mean, you know, the fields we're talking about, the sciences of the mind, are nowhere near as developed as fields like biology or physics. So we, we're more immune than most to fashion and taste and, and sometimes a desire to shock. I think the, the, the new wave is uh, where we see ourselves as automatons. We see rationality and reason as irrelevant. Is to a large extent sparked by a, by a fascination with neuroscience. Yes, and um, and and I think you know neuroscience is the cat's pajamas. They they are, it, 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 it's a field that's going great guns and learning a lot about them, the brain. But I think combined with the excitement of neuroscience, there's some truly bad philosophy. That seems that where, where people seem to be under the grips of the idea that if it happens in the brain, it happens nowhere else. Right, right. And and so you know, discovering that decision processes are made in the brain somehow is then garbled and ends up as a view that decision processes don't exist. Another point I, I think I I just throw in there, one made to me some years ago by Daniel Dennett, um, is that when we talk about rationality and its products. We aren't just talking about individual brains. We're talking about a lot of brains working together. And the collective creation of many people deliberating rational, rationally 
is itself really impressive, uh, and it often manages to overcome whatever blind spots, biases, etc., are embedded in our own habitual thinking. That's right, and I think that the, the best case for that would be science. Exactly, yeah. You know, because individual individuals are, are tremendously blinded by their biases and limitations, but science has these extraordinary procedures in place. I mean, not perfectly followed, but, but, but they're in place involving, you know, a disrespect for authority, blind review processes, ideas of replication, people working as teams, a sort of opposition where you have different teams pursuing mm-hmm. different answers to the same question. And then out of all of this, you get, you know, the idea that the Earth revolves around the sun and there were once dinosaurs and there are quarks and quantum particles. And, you know, we did these extraordinary discoveries. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm... I'm an atheist, and, and, and I've argued in my book that, that um, the morality of babies is exactly what you'd expect from a Darwinian process that shows no sign of divine intervention. But if I were a believer and I wanted to make an argument for belief, I would say, isn't it extraordinary how us creatures of natural selection could, under the right circumstances, come to discover things that are so far surpassing our ordinary experience? Mm-hmm. And I'd make the same sort of awe towards morality, because I think morality shares certain um, certain interesting parallels with science. It wasn't me or you who discovered slavery was wrong. We, we, what we did was we picked up the fruit of people before us, reasoning through things, just like it wasn't me or you who discovered that dinosaurs once walked the earth. <laughs> and so, and 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 like um, and, and like science, morality is a project best pursued by groups often by groups with, with conflicting and clashing visions. And then, you know, we could make real progress that way. Um, you invoke one other force, that is storytelling, a narrative, uh, the way in which reading a story about another person gets you into the head of another person, gets you to identify, to relate to that other person, and widens your idea of respect and uh, consideration which is at the root of, you know, a really um, sound morality. This can be powerful stuff, uh, you write. It might well be that the greatest force underlying moral change in the last 30 years of the United States was the situation comedy. Yes, I believe that. Um, it, it, it's, and this is sort of an awkward tension, in my views, because I complain a lot about empathy. Right. I think that this is a case where empathy can do great good. Imagine, imagine this, because I think it's true that we're wired up to care for people who are our friends or our family. You could, you can, as an intellectual exercise, care about a stranger, but it's more difficult. But imagine also that there was a technology that could take people who don't even exist. And because they don't exist, they're unusually good people. They're, they're, they're funny, they're vivacious, they're young, they're beautiful. They don't challenge you or push you. And imagine this technology could expose you to these fictional individuals who are of other races and sexual orientation and so on, and fool you, not at an explicit level, you know what you're watching, but fool you at an, at an implicit level into thinking these are your friends, these are your neighbors. So, and I think that that's what Will and Grace and Modern Family do for gay people. I think it's what um, The Cosby Show did for African Americans. I think, I think um, many Americans who would tell you honestly they had no black friends, actually did. They had uh, the Huxtables on the Cosby show. And these were the nicest black friends you could imagine. They were, they were non-threatening. 
they were funny, they were intelligent, they were moral. I think that these the existence of these sort of fictional moral exemplars transforms us. So I think you'd agree with those, typically they're conservatives, who believe that uh, Hollywood and the entertainment industry is a kind of fifth column undermining our traditional values. Oh, they are certainly right. <laughs> they are certainly right. Dan Quayle came in for so much ridicule when he complained about Murphy Brown's uh, child born out of marriage. But, but his complaint was exactly right. That's, these things have an effect. They have a profound effect on what people believe. And the people creating them are largely of liberal political views. I mean, not always. So it's the exceptions that are interesting. The television show 24 portrayed torture as, as, as a horrible choice, but largely as effective. Mm-hmm. Jack Bauer will be torturing everybody on every episode. <laughs> right. and, and, it, and it's hard not to watch that. Appreciate at one level it's fictional, but also um, understand that it's, it feels that it's effective. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, but, but you're right, this is, this is it's, it's largely a liberal group proposing a liberal agenda. When polygamy becomes an issue in America, what's going to happen is HBO will have a series of a, of, of a, a smart, funny, attractive polygamous family. Oh, they already did it. Are you thinking of Big Love? Yeah. Big Love, Big Love was interesting, but, and, and, and Big Love was sort of a foot in the door. Right. But Big Love, had, I, I actually like that show a lot, did have some dis- issues of disapproval <laughs> and so on. But what they're going to have, it, they'll redo it with a version of the cast of Friends. <laughs> or you know, or, or uh-huh. how I how I met your mother, right? And um, and 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 it will it will have an effect. So these fictional events can expand our morality. Of course, these fictional events and stories can also diminish our morality. So you know, for every Will and Grace, there was a birth of the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for every Cosby show, there was a Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Well, certainly not in mainstream entertainment though these days. That's right. So. So if the people who are in mainstream entertainment share your moral views, you will be delighted at the products they put out because this will be, these are attempts, often successful, at, at persuading you to expand your moral circle. But if you're Rick Santorum, for instance, you might not be so happy. Yes, and if you're Rick Santorum, you would complain about the monopoly on, on who gets to do these stories. And if you were Rick Santorum, for conservatives, who to put their energies between Fox News is one thing. I think if they want a real social effect, they should put their energies into getting movies and TV shows out. <laughs> and and that, that, that represents the world, the moral world they want to live in. Well, that's a subject for a whole different show, uh, Paul. We could talk about why there is such an imbalance, why there are so few successful, <coughs> seeming conservative comedians, conservative uh, sitcom creators, and so on. But uh, one last question. Years ago, when you and I first talked about baby morality, mostly focusing on the research and and not on these bigger questions, I asked you at the end whether you had discovered anything, you again and your colleagues, had discovered anything that would change the way, uh, you know, you would recommend that children be raised. And you said no. Do you you feel that way still? I feel sort of philosophically that that, that people like me tend to overstate the implications of our work. Um, But I would not say no anymore. I think... There's some really interesting findings that seem very robust about in-group versus out-group bias, and um, and so one thing I would say is, from what we know, if you want your kids not to be racist, 
and to have sort of a broader moral view. Do your best to expose them to communities of people where the races and ethnicities get along. This is slightly different. It's not, it, 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 I think it's a bad idea to put your kid in, in a society where the races and ethnicities are clashing. Then the kid will just find out what side he or she is on and go with that side. In fact, better to be in an all-white society than something like that. But if there are communities where people really do get along, and you want your kid not to be racist, not to be biased, that's where you should put your kid. Well, well, don't don't forget rationality, though. Maybe you should also teach your kid not to be racist. I wouldn't want to forget rationality. <laughs> and I think I think reason argument is always a good thing. But you know, the idea of an in-group, out-group bias—you're not going to be able, unless you're Peter Singer, and even then, that's hard to shake with argument. So. So I think the better argument, even among adults, it isn't so much dissolving an in-group, out-group bias, but sort of suggesting to people where the line should be drawn. And our intuitions are different. I drove down a, you know, a street in New Haven recently, and there was a, a, a market that had a sign, Buy Local. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and I read closely, and it was a big thing, saying, you know, if you live in New Haven, spend your money on New Haven things. Support your, your neighbors. But I noticed we wouldn't have a sign saying, Buy White. No. <laughs> you know, that would be shocking. Even if they said, look, you're a white guy, why don't you support your fellow white guys? Right. And so some, some things become taboo. And I think rightfully so. We, we reason we should, those are not the way we should, we should make these cuts. I think that, that the energy with kids should not be to say, look, every human is of infinite value and every extension being is of infinite value. or something. I think that that's just so psychologically unnatural that it will be rejected. What we should do more is to say, you're going to cut the world into us and them. Let's try to cut it in ways that are reasonable and defensible and, and you know, the most inclusive possible. Like, uh, you know, New Haven versus the world. New Haven versus the world. <laughs> Paul, it's been great talking to you, as always. It's been a real pleasure. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. His new book is Just Babies, The Origins of Good and Evil. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll be back next week.